Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. But this week, I'm not going to review one of Stephen King's published works, but instead an adaptation of one of his works, an adaptation that is considered to be, among his fans, one of his best adaptations, and among the general movie-going audience, a beloved movie. It's a feel-good movie. In fact, it's considered one of the greatest films ever made. And certainly TNT thinks so. Um, It's a movie that a lot of people point out to non-Stephen King fans when they say that they don't like Stephen King because of all the blood and the guts and the scares and and this and that. They say, well, what about this movie? Do you like this movie? And people say yes. And they say, well, that is a Stephen King story. And people go, what? No, that's not possible. Um, Of course, the movie that I'm referring to um, comes from the novella Different Seasons Um, The title of the novella was changed slightly to make it a little bit more streamlined. Um, It's a movie about hope. Um, It's a powerful movie. Um, I think that it's one that basically everyone um, has seen on multiple occasions. It's a powerful film about holding on to hope in the worst of circumstances, never giving up on yourself, finding the best in any possible um, situation and doing what you can to control what seems to be an uncontrollable situation. And of course, I'm speaking of Frank Darabont's classic, The Shawshank Redemption. So I'm going to read some some facts about uh, Shawshank from Wikipedia. In 1998, Shawshank was not listed in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, but nine years later in 2007, it was number 72 on the revised list, outranking both Forrest Gump and Pulp Fiction, the two most critically acclaimed movies from the year of Shawshank's release. In 1999, film critic Roger Ebert listed Shawshank on his great movies list. It has been number one on IMDb's user-generated top 50 since 2008 when it surpassed The Godfather. Readers of Empire Magazine voted the film as best film of the 1990s, and it placed number four on Empire's list of the 500 greatest movies of all time in 2008. In March 2011, the film was voted by BBC Radio 1 and BBC Radio 1 Extra listeners as their favorite film of all time. Additionally, the Writers Guild of America included Frank Darabont's screenplay on its 101 Greatest Screenplays list at number 22. The film was nominated for seven Academy Awards in 1994 without winning in any category. Best Picture, Best Actor uh, for Freeman, Best Adapted Screenplay for Frank Darabont, Best Cinematography for Roger Deakins, Best Editing for Richard uh, Francis Bruce, Best Original Score for Thomas Newman, and Best Sound Mixing for Robert J. Litt, Elliot Tyson, Michael Herbick, and Willie D. Burton. He received two Golden Globe nomination uh, awards for Best Performance by an Actor in a Motion Picture for Freeman, Best Screenplay for Darabont, Robbins, and Freeman were both nominated for Outstanding Performance by a Male Actor in a Leading Role at the inaugural uh, Screen Actors Guild Awards in 1995. Darabont was nominated for a Directors Guild of America Award in 1994 for Best Director for a Feature Film, while cinematographer Roger Deakins won the American Society of Cinematographers Award for Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography. The Shawshank Redemption received a limited release on September 23, 1994 in North America. During its opening weekend, the film earned $727,000 from 33 theaters, an average of $22,000 per theater. It received a wide release on October 14, 1994, expanding to a total of 944 theaters to earn $2.4 million, an average of $2,545 per theater, finishing as the number nine film of the weekend. The film left theaters in November, late November 1994 after 10 weeks with an appropriate total gross of $16 million. It was later re-released in February of 95 during the Oscar season and made an additional $9 million. In total, the film made approximately $28.3 million in North America theaters, making it the number 51 highest grossing film of 94 and the number 21 highest grossing R-rated film of 94. In terms of critical response, The Shawshank Redemption garnered widespread critical acclaim from critics. Entertainment Weekly reviewer Owen Gleiberman praised the choice of scenery, writing that the moss-dark, saturated images have a redolent sensuality that makes the film very realistic, 
while praising Morgan Freeman's acting and oratory skills as making Red appear real. Gleiberman felt that with the laconic good guy, neo-Gary Cooper role, Tim Robbins is unable to make Andy connect with the audience. The film garnered a 91% approval rating from 64 critics, an average rating of 8.2 out of 10 on uh, review aggregation website Rotten Tomatoes. Metacritic provides a score of 80 out of 100 from 19 critics, which indicates generally favorable reviews. The film has been critically acclaimed for depicting um, ideas about existentialism more fully than any contemporary movie. Frank Darabont secured the film adaptation rights from author Stephen King after impressing the author with his short film adaptation of The Woman in the Room in 1983. Although the two had become friends and maintained a pen pal relationship, Darabont did not work with him until four years later in 1987 when he optioned to adapt Shawshank. This is one of the more famous dollar deals made by King with aspiring filmmakers. Darabont later directed The Green Mile, which was based on another work about a prison by Stephen King, and then followed that up with an adaptation of Stephen King's novella, The Mist. Rob Reiner, who had previously adapted another King novella, The Body, into the film Stand By Me, offered $2.5 million in an attempt to write and direct Shawshank. He planned to cast Tom Cruise in the role of Andy and Harrison Ford as Red. Darabont seriously considered and liked Reiner's vision, but he ultimately decided it was his chance to do something really great by directing the film for himself. And I'm glad that he did. And Rob Reiner's version is one of those great what-ifs in an alternate universe, in one of the many worlds that spin out of the tower. There is a movie starring Tom Cruise and Harrison Ford, um, which certainly would have been really interesting. Um, but I I'm, I'm glad that we got what we got. Um, Ohio State Reformatory, also known as the Mansfield Reformatory, served as the fictional Shawshank pr prison. Through the f though the film is set in Maine, the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield, Ohio, served as the fictional Shawshank prison. Though a large portion of the prison was torn down after filming, the main administrative building and two cell blocks remained. The site was revisited later for filming parts of the film Air Force One. Several of the interior shots of the specialized prison facilities, such as the admittance room and the warden's office, were shot in the reformatory. The interior of the boarding room was used by Brooks and Red was located in the administrative building, though the exterior shots were made elsewhere. The prison site is a tourist attraction. Internal scenes in the prison cell blocks were actually filmed on a soundstage built inside a nearby shuttered Westington House facility. Downtown scenes were also filmed in Mansfield, as well as neighboring Ashland, Ohio. The oak tree under which Andy buries his letter to Red is located, um, I'm not going to give the, the, the latitude and longitude, but you can go to Wikipedia and find it. Uh, the tree was heavily damaged by straight line winds in a thunderstorm on July 29, 2011. Officials were unsure if the tree would survive. However, thanks to rally groups and inspections by forestry organizations, the tree was found to be alive and well and still stands to this day. Just as a prison in Ohio stood in for a fictional one in Maine, the beach scenes were, that were shown in the final minutes of the film um, were actually shot in the Caribbean on the island of St. Croix, one of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, the beach is Sandy Point National Wildlife Refuge, a two-mile crescent of sand um, on the southwestern tip of the island. The film is dedicated to Alan Green, an agent and close personal friend of the film's director, Frank Darabont. Green died shortly before the film was released due to complication of HIV. Um, so I just wanted to kind of put a little bit of context there, um, especially all of the, the critical accolades um, because this movie is is widely beloved. Now, I, I just, I'm going to shift a little bit away from Shawshank Renal and, and get into um, just some viewer email. Um, because since the last viewer email uh, came out and that the last viewer email was released with the Firestarter movie review, um, some emails have uh, accumulated and I want to make sure that if people spend the time to write me an email that... I give back by reading that email um, because we all live busy lives and I really want to put your voice out there into the world because it, like I said before, it can't be all me. I like sitting down. I like reading Stephen King's works. I like coming up with thoughts. But I don't want it to be just all me all the time. I think that's important for people to, to have a voice um, and to share that voice. 
and for us to to be able to um, come together as a community. Uh, so keep those emails coming. I think that's very, very important And uh, by writing to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, and as always, you can always leave a uh, review at iTunes. So first up, we have Dwayne who writes, I'm currently listening to part one of your Horns review, and I think that's your best episode yet, which is strange since we're talking about a Stephen King podcast. It sounds like Horns hit you with the same emotional punch that it did with me. It's my favorite Joe Hill novel, and it seems to be a rarity when speaking with other readers. The general consensus that I receive from Hill fans is their preference for Heart-Shaped Box or Nosferatu. I like both of those books, but Horns remains my favorite. Um, And for anyone that hasn't read horns but maybe has listened to the review um uh, joe hill is stephen king's son he's an uh, an accomplished writer of his own um and if you haven't read anything by joe hill i strongly recommend that you do and the man is fantastic and um i wouldn't necessarily recommend horns to start off with you actually might be better off reading nosferatu which to me is his most stephen king of his works in fact there's quite a lot of shout outs to stephen king's uh works in there um and and he makes a lot of connections to stephen king's uh previously published uh works and so it's fun little easter eggs in there um but it definitely feels like a stephen king novel so that might be your good gateway into the world of joe hill and from there you can do um heart-shaped box and horns and 20th century ghosts and um his his comic book um lock and key so Dwayne continues i watched the movie this weekend on demand and was pleasantly surprised on how well it captured the essence of the novel naturally there were changes made for the screen adaptation but that's expected with any book to movie conversion The performances were all excellent across the board. Joe Hill should be very happy that his first film adaptation turned out so well. Anyway, gotta run. Great show. Thank you, Cy. Dwayne. Well, Dwayne, thanks for writing in. Thank you for your thoughts. Um, I have not had a chance to check it out. Um, Currently uh, recording this episode in late October. It's not quite Halloween yet, um, but maybe I'll have time between now and Halloween to to watch the movie and put out a, a podcast episode. Um, which I review the movie because that's something I definitely like to do, but um, time is is getting away from me at the moment. Um, it will come. I just don't know if it's anytime soon. Author Joe Sherry writes. Uh, Joe, by the way, has has uh, written in before, um, and if you have not done so, please go out to Amazon.com and check out the um, zombie anthology So Long and Thanks for All Your Brains, which includes his story, OCD. It's a great, quick little read. I strongly recommend it, and it's well worth the price of getting the zombie anthology So Long and Thanks for All, your, all the Brains. Um, he writes, Dear Stephen Kingcast, Listening to your in-depth and comprehensive review on Sunday nights has already managed to become a tradition. The celebration of King's works with wit, enthusiasm, and insight is a testament to Uncle Stevie's power as the premier storyteller of our generation. Thanks for putting the podcast out. It would be a bargain at twice the price. This is where you throw your head back and roar with laughter, um, which is a, a joke on the Stephen, King, uh, Stephen Kingism um, uh, in which his characters always roar with laughter. Um, so Joe writes, Horns is a novel that holds a special place in both my heart and in my imagination. As a grown man, few novels have managed to cause tears to drip down my cheeks, and Marin's letter absolutely makes this constant reader cry. It's a powerful novel that manages to work on a lot of levels. If I had to weigh in what I thought the book was about, I'd say that it's an exploration of loss, desperation, and pain. Marin is the living embodiment of heaven to Ig. She is his personal paradise. It forges a strong connection to Lucifer, an angel that lost the literal heaven and fell. Having glanced paradise and unable to ever return, it makes them both tragic characters with similar arcs. It reminds me of Twain's quote, but who prays for Satan? Who, in 18 centuries, has had the common humanity to pray for the one sinner that needed it the most? And what a great quote that is. Um, I think that 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 really works. So thanks for sharing that, Joe. Um, and in my review of Horns, I had asked... Um, for, for anyone out there to, to share your thoughts on what it's about because it, it, it does get surreal towards the end and there's a lot of interpretation there. But that's a great point that Ig is, I'm sorry, that, that Marin is Ig's um, symbolic heaven um, that he'll never be able to, to get back to. Um, and, and that reinforces just how sad the novel really is. 
Joe continues, I ordered the film on video on demand over the weekend, and in my opinion, it's not a successful adaptation. I don't want to be too hard on the filmmakers. It feels like a sincere attempt to translate the material, but it just doesn't work. The tonal shifts that work on the page are off-putting on the screen, and the movie feels wrong. Lee's character is changed the most significantly, and it further derailed the movie for me. The story is understandably streamlined, and a lot of the nuance and beauty of the novel is lost in translation. Sometimes the little things are the important things. As they say, the devil's in the details. Thanks again for all the good listening. All the best, Joe Sherry. P.S. I don't know if I'd count it as a kingism, but I got flashes of Pet Cemetery's Zelda when Marin described her sister's reaction to her own sickness. I'm not sure if it was intentional, but the emotional ugliness as a result of illness formed a parallel. Ciao. Great kingism. Um, and and that that's so dead on. Um, anyone that has read Pet Cemetery, and I'll be um, reading Pet Cemetery um, soon. I'm currently reading Christine, and Pet Cemetery is on the docket right after that, so I can't wait to get back in. But anyone that has seen the movie Pet Cemetery, I think, um, has strong impressions of Zelda, and it's probably one of the most uh, terrifying um, moments of Stephen King captured to film, and uh, it's definitely reminiscent um, of Pet Cemetery when Joe Hill goes into the um, descriptions of Marin's sister um, dying um, of cancer. It definitely invokes um, Zelda from Pet Cemetery. So good, good, good shout out there. Joe also posted a news article on the, the, the Facebook page for Stephen King cast, which got me super excited. So today, as I'm recording this review for Shawshank Redemption, um, I also released the Firestarter movie review. So that kind of gives you where, where the timeline is here of, uh, of what I'm recording and what I'm releasing. But uh, in, in, this is really good timing to talk about this because what Joe posted was a news article that states the following. Stephen King's Firestarter is getting a TV series sequel with TNT's The Shop. TV Line reports that TNT is developing a TV show follow-up to the story of telekinetic Charlie McGee finding her 20 years later. This supernatural thriller centers on the organization that once exploited the pyrokinetic abilities of a young girl named Charlie McGee. 20 years after bringing the shop to its knees, Charlie has been tracked down by one of its former members, Henry Talbot, who reveals that the shop is alive and badder than ever, unleashing terrifying new entities into the world. It's now up to Talbot, Charlie, and others like her to find the shop and destroy it for good. I'm so excited to hear about this because during my review of uh, Firestarter, uh, the novel, I did talk about how it is ripe for a, a TV series. Every season can focus on like a different uh, big bad from the shop trying to track her down with like the the biggest bad of them all you know in charge of the shop the the new Hollister whoever he may be um, and it just it works it's a story that works for um, for television uh, because you can have your overarching uh, story arc of uh, Charlie trying to bring the shop down but you can also have your monster of the week being those uh, shop experiments that are, are trying to, to track her down and get her. So that's fantastic. And the shop is a great villain. I'm glad to see that it's not dead. Um, maybe there can be a crossover episode uh, between this and the concepts found in uh, the Jeff Fahey classic, The Lawnmower Man. So thank you for, for, for putting that on the Facebook page. And if anyone has any more information, please feel free to, to track it down um, and send it my way. Then Mike writes, Hello, I'm in love with your show, and I've been listening since day one. It's really nice to see thorough critiques of King's works done so well. Keep it up. King is one of my personal favorite writers. On the topic of Stephen King and podcasts, have you heard of Arnie Carvalho's Of Now Playing podcast, Stephen King Reviews, at the Book and Nachos podcast? It's hard for me to decide which I prefer, but either way, you're making great reviews, and I hope they continue. Well, Mike, um, I hadn't heard about it beforehand, but I really, um, I'm really glad that you, you mentioned it now because I think that's important that uh, anyone that is putting out a Stephen King podcast uh, be able to just, you know, celebrate what everyone is doing out there. So I haven't had a chance to listen to it, but I am very pleased that there is um, that there's more out there. Um, and I, when I get a chance, I do want to um, sit down and give it a listen. And while I'm on the subject, um, I, I don't know how it's gone so long without me actually talking about the following website, but Lilia's library, 
um, you know, shame on me uh, because this is, uh, I don't even know what episode uh, number this is going to be, but it's definitely in the teens. Um, and for those of you who don't know, Lilia's Library, which is spelled L-I-L-J-A-S dash library.com for years has been the source of Stephen King um, information up to the latest news. It's a great hub for Stephen King fans. And Hans from Lilius Library, um, along with um, someone else by the name of Lou, they, they put out um, a Stephen King podcast called The Stephen King Podcast. Uh, and I, I just think that's important that those of us that are working um, to uh, to promote Stephen King and to talk about Stephen King that, uh, you know, we celebrate the works of each other. So I really want to put uh, Lilia's library out there for all of the hard work that, uh, like I said, Hans has put out for, for a number of years, um, just, just being a great Stephen King fan um, and, and, and creating a website for all the Stephen King fans to come together. So after this, if you haven't checked out that particular website, um, liliaslibrary.com, uh, there's a link to it. Um, but if you go to iTunes and subscribe to the uh, Stephen King podcast, it'll just pop up. It's got a great logo. It's two skulls with uh, <laughs> with uh, headphones on. Um, so I think that the more we can spread the word, um, the better we are. Um, and, and coming soon, actually, I, I just saw last week... Um, Cemetery Dance is going to be dabbling in some sort of retrospective Stephen King something. I don't know if it's going to be an online review. I don't know if it's going to be a podcast. I don't know, but definitely the word of Stephen King is is getting out there. People are talking more about him um, lately than I think that they have in a long time, which was the whole purpose of this podcast. So um, I, I think that the more we can we can discuss it, I, I think that the, the better off we all are. So that's my shameless plug for fellow Stephen King reviewers out there. Go out and, and give them a listen, give them a read, um, and just dive into to everything Stephen King. But going back to Mike, um, he, he wrote, P.S., I believe you stated your, your favorite Stephen King novels, but what about his short stories or the movie adaptations of his works? Whatever your answer is, I can at least guarantee it won't be Children of the Corn 15, Colonels of Fate, or The Mangler 2, a film in which a killer laundry press is converted into an electronic security system that kills people with loose wires. One of those is real. Um, great ending to a fantastic email. Uh, so, Mike... Um, I, I guess my, um, off the top of my head, my favorite short stories would be, um, a lot of them are actually from Skeleton Crew, which I'm really looking forward to, to, um, to rereading, but we have, uh, The Raft, which is a, just a great little short story, um, that speaks about so many fears, and in fact, I, I just thought about it the other week, um, because I went camping with, uh, some friends of mine and I, and it was in um, early October. It's in the off season. It's cold, and it's on a lake. Um, and I was just, and, and we went kayaking. But I, it's not hard to imagine encountering an oil slick, um, a sentient oil slick that's out to get us um, at that time of year, because that's the time of year that the the raft takes place in, and and just the desolation and the hopelessness there. It's um, it felt very very real. So the raft is is on my mind. I think the mist. It's gonna. I'm gonna be hard pressed to find a better short story out there than the mist. Um, and I'm really looking forward to to rewatching. Actually, I'm. Uh, it's it's another Frank Darabont movie, which is very fitting because I'll be reviewing The Shawshank Redemption today. Uh, 1408 is a great um, example of the surreal, which is something that, that that King doesn't really tend to do. He he's straightforward horror, and he doesn't tend to do that that Lynchian uh, dreamscape sort of thing. But 1408 is is a great exercise in that. Uh, Night Flyer I think is great. The Jaunt is great. That one disturbs me, but those are all all really good short stories. And I'll get into them because um, most of those are found within Skeleton Crew. So I'll get into most of those. Um, in uh, in a few weeks, my time, but months and months and months um, down the road, um, podcast time. And then uh, Quinn writes in, what were your thoughts on The Mangler from Night Shift? Eh, Quinn, um, I'm sorry. Uh, and for everyone out there, I, I don't know if you remember from the, uh, the, the review of Night Shift. Um, 
but I, I discussed having some issues sitting down and actually rereading it. I just couldn't get into it. So a lot of the um, stories I didn't actually reread. So the Mangler was one of them. Um, so I apologize. I kind of cheated on that episode. Um, so points off on me. I get it. Um, I apologize to everyone that, that really wanted my thoughts on the Mangler, but I don't really have any. Um, but Quinn, if you do, um, please do not hesitate to write in um, to share your thoughts on, on the Mangler, the story and the movie. And lastly, uh, my mom writes in uh, and she writes, hi, I just listened to your first podcast. Very good. Some thoughts. Did Carrie have a choice? Did she really have a choice when she decided to return to the school and enact her revenge? I don't think so. Overcome with feelings of insecurity, humiliation, and rage, and being a teenager, I don't think she had the maturity, hindsight, or self-control needed to do anything other than what she did. Um, so that that's a great point. Um, and I, I encourage others to, to, to write in and tell me your thoughts. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 a really good question. You know, at, at what point do, do we really le- uh, lose complete control? I still think that she had a choice. I think that Stephen King really makes it a point to, to show that, that she turns around and goes back in after she's left. And I think that the blame falls on her from that point forward. Um, but I can see why others might, might feel differently. Mom continues, overall, very good. I especially like the Kingisms. Nice observation. One thought to ponder. You totally lost me on the section of a narrative within the narrative. Uh, Remember your audience, who you're trying to reach. Yes, we're King fans, and I don't think you should talk down, but the everyday King fan is not going to understand the depth of your thoughts, so don't get too complex. Or just explain it in a more understandable way. I'm very proud of you. Always have been. Love, Mom. P.S. I also like the moral compass thought. I haven't really considered that term in years, and when one really does think about a moral compass is that just innate or must it be taught is it our consciousness is it our conscious or is it something that we learn just a thought um so mom thank you for writing in um for everyone um out there um uh, my mom is a longtime stephen king reader um and growing up um we've shared many many conversations around stephen king so the stephen king cast wouldn't feel right um, if she didn't share her thoughts. So thanks, Mom. Thanks for that. Um, so as always, everyone, please feel free to, to share what you think about Stephen King or what you think of this podcast um, by writing to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Now, with all of that said, it is time to get into the movie review of Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption. So immediately, the Castle Rock Entertainment logo appears placing us firmly in Stephen King territory. It's a nice Easter egg for us constant readers, akin to the many hidden references in modern superhero movies. Granted, it serves a functional purpose. It's the promotional image of the production company that made this movie. But still, really, I mean, to see the Stephen King's most famous town idealized with that lighthouse, that moon, that ocean, the title filling the screen, it's it's a cool experience. Old-timey music fills the screen. And much like we'll see in the other legitimate Stephen King adaptations, Stand By Me, all there needs to be are the names of the stars and the movie. There's no glitz, there's no glamour, it's just the facts. And much like Stand By Me, we see our main character in an emotional state while sitting in a car. Unlike the novella Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption, we meet Andy Dufresne not behind the walls of the prison, but behind the wheel of the car, a gun in one hand and a bottle of liquor in the other. We cut to the trial, where he's cross-examined by Frank Darabont mainstay, Jeffrey DeMunn, who you'll find in other Darabont features such as The Green Mile, The Mist, and The Walking Dead. Those are three Frank Darabont productions, two Stephen King adaptations, and Jeffrey DeMunn will co-star in yet another Stephen King story, the 1999 miniseries Storm of the Century. While watching this particular trial scene, um, it was just... Uh, invoking feelings that I felt recently as I watched the um, Paradise Lost uh, documentary trilogy from HBO Films, which is the um, documentary uh, chronicling the the West Memphis Three in West Memphis, Arkansas. Um, And if you have not seen it, um, these three movies, please do, because it's an illuminating, heart-wrenching, 
um, examination of some faults in our legal system um, as three men are, it looks like they're um, wrongfully convicted for some horrific murders, um, but it's, it's a tense, it's a tense, it's over six hours um, altogether, but it's, it's fascinating. And, and it, it, for the West Memphis Three themselves, it, it has a happy ending. Um, but just the idea of um, being imprisoned, even though you haven't done something, is a horrifying thought. Um, and that's definitely on display here um, in, in the Shawshank Redemption. And that wouldn't be possible if it weren't for Tim Robbins, right? He, he, in this courtroom scene, he captures that detached demeanor that the judge refers to as icy. During the trial scene, I, I just couldn't help but watch Tim Robbins' eyes, startlingly intelligent and at times darting all over the place, functions of a mind that can't sit still for very long, scanning over the courtroom for ways to get out of the situation their owner has found themselves in. Andy is sentenced. Now, check this, okay? We immediately see prison bars. But what's interesting is that Darabont chooses to showcase the prison bar's opening. In the hands of another director, to illustrate the sense of being imprisoned, we would most likely uh, be cut to a shot of prison bars slamming closed, but instead we are given a shot of the bars sliding open, revealing a door which also swings open. Whether it's intentional or not, it foreshadows the escape from the prison and provides the viewer a sense of hope, a way to ease them into the movie, a way of saying, hey look, it's a movie about prison, sure. But it's, it's going to be okay. And then we meet our narrator, Morgan Freeman. Now just watch him during this scene as he enters the room before the parole board. He doesn't know what to do with his hat, with his arms, put them behind his back, keep them clasped in front of him. His face tries to remain stoic, but he knows what's on the line. And he also knows he shouldn't get his hopes up, knowing he's more likely uh, than not to, to not receive the parole itself. Now all of this occurs within the span of maybe two seconds but it tells us so much about this character. He leaves, rejected from parole, and enters the prison yard. And here we get our first glimpse of a setting that we'll be spending the next three hours in. Um, and a second later, Red begins his narration. Now, it, it's kind of funny to listen to now, now that Morgan Freeman has, uh, and Morgan Freeman uh, narrated movies. Um, it's basically a subgenre of cinema at this point and has been endlessly parodied. But so there's a reason why Morgan Freeman is asked to narrate as much as he does. There's just something about his voice and, and his delivery. Um, delivery. He, he has a gentle gravitas. Uh, and I, I just don't think that this movie would work as well as it does if it didn't have him delivering the lines. And I'm thinking about what I had read earlier about what Rob Reiner would have done um, having Harrison Ford. And I just, it would be so different. I mean, like that, that, he, he has that more grumbly, gravelly voice um, of a... And I think that it would have made for a completely different red. Um, but I, I, I'm going to take Morgan Freeman over this one. I, I can't picture it or, or without having his voice part of it. Now, Stephen King's words through the mouth of Morgan Freeman over the sweeping shots of uh, Frank Darabont and Richard Deakins, it's a wonderful combination, as evidenced by Freeman talking about smuggling into the prison as Darabont gives us an aerial shot of the prison itself. As I stated in the shining review of Kubrick's movie, it's necessary for the viewer to get a sense of location when the setting is so important to the story. And Andy arrives at Shawshank, and his arrival is terrifying. The bus so small in the prison yard, so large, the gates filled with prisoners ready for the fresh meat. It's more frightening than any supernatural threat. And then we meet Warden Norton, played perfectly by Bob Gunton. It's a smart decision on Darabont's part to keep one warden throughout the narrative rather than the novella, which saw two or three wardens. It makes sense in the novella. King wants to establish the passage of time within the walls of the prison, but I completely agree with Darabont's approach here. It's important to establish your villain. They, see, they say a hero is only as good as his villain, and we need Andy to overcome Norton, who is the embodiment of the corruption of the power. He's everything that's wrong with the system, and he's the face of injustice. So when he says, put your trust in the Lord, your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. We know that we have our antagonist, a dangerous one that believes in contradictory concepts and his own hype, and we should fear for Andy. If we weren't scared enough, we experience our first night in prison. 
with the darkness behind the bars and the disembodied voices mocking and howling through the corridors, we are in a haunted house filled with angry spirits. A new prisoner begins to wail and torment, another soul banished to hell. And then Clancy Brown enters, a guard who will not protect but will contribute to the torment, brutally beating a wounded man and illustrating that there is no safety to be found. The scenes unfold as they did in King's version, such as the first official meeting between Andy and Red, in which Andy requests the rock hammer and the threat of the sisters begins to grow. But Darabont expands, knowing that's important to show rather than to tell, specifically showing us how Red gets the contraband and how Andy receives it. And the rock hammer is not the only thing that Darabont shows Andy receiving, as the next scene, Andy is attacked by the sisters. And then we get the scene just as it unfolds from the novella, the roofing scene that allows Andy to get his foot in the door. The scene is taken directly from the novella, including Captain Hadley's misanthropic grumblings about an inheritance. What Darabont's able to do that King can't do is give us the incredible shot of Hadley holding Andy over the edge of the prison roof. Go watch this scene unfold. First, Andy is framed against the ground to illustrate the height from which he could be thrown. The camera pans up, giving perspective to the prison, showing the fields beyond the bars, then begins to pan around the two characters, showing the prisoners standing helplessly by and the armed guards ready for action. It's a powerful shot when you realize that also serves that particular moment in the story. When the camera reveals the drop, Andy is in danger of being thrown. Yet at that moment, Andy says enough to convince Hadley to spare his life. At that moment, the camera pans up, revealing green fields beyond the prison, symbolizing both a growing safety and foreshadowing of a life beyond the prison itself. A life that only comes because of the success of this one moment that ends with the camera revolving around the two of them, and as it revolves, it suggests a shift in power. Andy is no longer on the precipice, and he stands on the same ground as Hadley, equals for a moment. It is an incredible, small moment in this movie that does so much, and it's all because of Frank Darabont's decisions here. Now, a note on Hadley. He's a minor character in the book and still a minor character in the movie, but he crackles when he's on screen because he's played by Clancy Brown, who can radiate so much menace with just a stare. And then when he opens his mouth and that voice rumbles out, forget about it. So when Boggs, the lead sister, head tormentor of Andy Dufresne, opens his cell to find Hadley standing there, it's very obvious that Boggs is not on the top of the food chain, and there's an apex predator in this prison, and the rapist is in some very serious danger. The beatdown that he gets is brutal. It's treated like a horror movie, with him clinging to the bars outside of his cell, screaming for help, and just watching him dragged in by a monster unseen, that monster being um, Clancy Brown. It's so effective. Time passes, and we spend more time with Brooks, the kindly lifer librarian who nurtured Jake the Bird back to health. After 50 years, he's being released and breaks down, nearly killing a friend. The scene is essential in showing the various ways a prison can break you down. His exit from the prison is a great mirror to Andy's entrance. Andy arrived to a prison bustling with life, convicts climbing over the fence to get at him. Fitting representation for a man's entrance to prison. Prison, after all, is a new life, and it makes sense to have that new life represented with great energy. Now contrast this with Brooks's exit from the same gate, except his exit is desolate, devoid of life just as fitting as his sentence is ending, whereas Andy's had just been beginning. One was birth, this is death. Both scenes are complete with the characters journeying on a bus, both characters filled with terror, except Brooks's bus travels from the prison, and just as it had for Andy, dumps him into a frightening alien world. We don't see much of Brooks on the outside, nor should we. The more time we spend away from the Shawshank um, prison, the less oppressive, oppressive it will feel. But it's important to show life on the outside for a lifer, to show the effects of a long-term prison sentence and how it can rob your ability to live a normal life. And the only life he has left, he decides to take. It's a heart-wrenching scene, completely devastating and amazingly directed by Darabont. Just look at the shot where Brooks's face is framed by posts. Posts, yes, but they're meant to invoke prison bars. At that moment, his face is a mixture of sadness and joy. Sadness, certainly, for what is about to transpire, but the slightest of joys, too, 
because his, he knows his pain will soon end, and in that moment of comfort, it's fitting that Darabont frames it with an image of the only home Brooks has ever known. With this scene, we see Red's future, and it sets us up for the end of the movie. More time passes, and when Tommy is introduced into prison, we see how long Andy has been there. He's no longer the newbie. With glasses and gray in his hair, he's immersed in the prison culture, he's part of the jokes, he's part of the gang. Of course, with Tommy, we are given the beginning of the end, when it is revealed that Andy has a chance to be free, and this chance is completely squashed by Norton, and it's a soul-crushing scene. Not as soul-crushing as the scene in which Norton lures Tommy out to his death, which is a change from the novella. King was content to have Norton transfer Tommy. Darabont goes that extra mile, an extra green mile, to show the depths to which Norton will sink in order to keep a hold on Dufresne. He is determined to completely break Andy, throws him in the hole for a month, murders his only hope, threatening to have him raped, the books burned if he doesn't continue the scams, and adds another month in the hole on top for good measure. This scene couldn't have come at a better time. Darabont had gone to great lengths illustrating that Andy is living as good as one can while still being imprisoned. Here, with all of that ripped away, he reminds us that despite the benefits he may have, he's still in prison. When he comes out of that hole, he has a conversation with Red, which introduces the end game to the movie, The Fabled Town in Mexico. Red gets unsettled at the talk of all this hope, afraid for Andy for thinking it. Andy now has a different look to him. Nearly broken by the prison, by Norton, by life, he's filled with steely determination. While we don't know what this means yet, it's clear upon repeat viewings, and Andy delivers the most famous line from not just this movie, but from any movie ever. And say it with me, everyone. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. You get busy living, or you get busy dying. Andy then tells Red what to do if he gets out of prison. And out of context, Andy comes off as possessed, slightly crazed, possibly suicidal. This possibility is floated around by everyone at the lunch table when we learn that Andy requested a length of rope of six feet. The prisoners and we now expect Andy to commit suicide the way that Brooks had. Then the end comes and it is phenomenal. From the sirens going off to watching Norton shove his arm through that poster revealing the hole, it's a glorious moment of cinema, knowing that Andy had done it, he'd won, he'd outsmarted the system. A great touch on the part of Darabont is explaining the clothes. I wondered, as I had reread King's novella, how Andy had acquired new clothes when on the outside. Here, he takes Norton's extra suit, which allows him to enter the bank when escaped and withdraw the money that Norton had acquired illegally during his tenure as warden. It's a different take on Andy's exit. In the novella, it's due to the money he had squirreled away before being imprisoned. Here, it's Andy robbing the robbers. It's a small departure from the book, but it's a smart one. And after he dumps from the sewage tunnel into the stream, Darabont gives us one of the most triumphant scenes ever captured in film. The music swells while the thunder rages, the lightning flashes, and Andy strips off his prison uniform like Clark Kent transforming into Superman. He's a cleansed by nature, born a new man free of the prison life he'd come from. Norton finds what Andy had left for him, a copy of the Bible, and we are given a visual reminder of the hope that can be found within the book. Hope, in this case, in the form of a rock hammer. Darabont concludes with Red's final parole scene, and it couldn't be any more different than the first that we see at the beginning of the movie. Then, we saw a nervous young man who wants out and doesn't know how to give himself that kind of hope. Here, we have a hardened, wise, older man who isn't concerned with impressing or convincing the board. He's completely confident and thoroughly honest, and he's given his parole. And we, as an audience, should fear for him. He's served a sentence of 40 years. We've seen what 50 years can do to a prisoner, and like Brooks, we are given the scene of him on the bus, in the halfway house, bagging groceries. He even spots the Brooks was here carving, a reminder to us that we should be afraid for him. But hope comes in the form of Andy Dufresne. Red, remembering the conversation with Andy that had at the time concerned him so much, goes off in search of the rock wall. There he finds his salvation, and the audience sheds a collective tear when Red walks up on Andy on that white beach under an infinite sky. So, I, I didn't know, I'm just going to put this, this particular review in a little bit of context. Since reviewing um, Rita Hayworth in The Shawshank Redemption, 
I went on to read Apt Pupil and review it and record it, watch Apt Pupil the movie, review it, record it, watch Stand By Me, review it, record it. Um, I read Horns. I recorded it. Um, I did a, I did a lot of other reviews, and I just was really hesitant about watching the Shawshank Redemption. Um, most, and I was trying to think why. Why did I not really want to revisit this? Um, and part of it is because uh, I've seen it so many times. Um, I saw it in the theater. Um, I loved it when it first came out, but maybe after the 15th or 16th time of watching it on TNT, I got sick of it. I know that many people out there, for them, it's the movie that whenever it's on, you have to drop everything and watch. Um, so I, I wasn't sure if what it had become in our pop culture would turn me off, that I would kind of rebel against what is now this established you must like this movie because that's that's kind of how it, it's presented now. You have to like The Shawshank Redemption or there's something wrong with you. And I guess there's a little rebellious streak in me that says I'm going to like it whether, you know, if I – I'm going to like it only if I want to like it, not because you're telling me to like it, right? Um, so I was hesitant about that. Um, and I, I just wasn't sure because it, it, it had been parried so many times. It has been referenced so many times. I know that there's all these accolades. It's this feel-good movie across the board. And I just I wasn't sure if going back and revisiting it, if I would be bored with it, if I would find it cheesy. Um, so I, I kept pushing it off. And I'm glad to say that when I sat down and watched it, um, it was clear to me that it is worth every single amount of praise that is heaped upon it. It is a fabulous movie. It is beautifully shot by Richard Deakins. It is wonderfully directed by um, Frank Darabont. The uh, The screenplay is great. Um, the acting is phenomenal. The messages of hope are distilled wonderfully through the actions of the characters and the lines of dialogue given to the characters to read from Frank Darabont's script. The setting is powerful. Um, it's an intense movie. Um, it's a wonderful movie. And like I said, it, it's just, it's considered a feel-good classic. It's considered a great film. And, and I 100% agree with that. So I was, like I said, I had been pushing it off forever. Um, but I'm glad I got back um, into it. And I was, I'm very happy I was able to, to review it and revisit it. So, the only thing that we have left now is the book versus the movie. So, I'm going to start with the title. Um, the, the movie title is The Shawshank Redemption. The novella title is Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. What is better? To me, the movie. I think that just it just captures it. And because the Rita Hayworth... Um, eh, I, I mean, Rita Hayworth is only one poster of a series of posters... Um, that, that, that he places on the wall. So I'm, I'm just going to go with the movie on that. What about Hadley? What about the character of Hadley? Um, Clancy Brown really brings him to life. I'm going to go with the movie. Norton, um, book versus movie. I'm going with the movie because he's just so sinister. Um, Red, we have Red in the book, Red in the movie. Hands down, the movie. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not even close. It's just what Morgan Freeman um, is able to do with his voice and with his act it's it's an incredible incredible um display of acting in this movie he makes his character really come to life because he's not so much a character in the novella as he is a way to transport us into that world but here he's a full fully realized um character andy i'm going with the movie on this as well tim robbins um does a, a fantastic job like i said earlier just watch that scene in the courtroom where his eyes are just darting all over the place it's so subtle but so powerful and he has so many scenes like that um you see every uh bit of emotion um that one person can feel while being in his shoes uh it's an incredible performance and the movie would not have worked had it not been for tim robbins um being there so across the board 
across the board for me, it's the movie, um, which is not a slam on Stephen King because the book or the novella is fantastic. It's just that Darabont saw what he wanted to do. He saw the the story that he wanted to tell, and he distilled all that Stephen King had done into its purest essence, and he expanded on the parts that he needed to expand, and he turned a good novella into a great film. Um, and by putting it out there in the world, uh, this and, a compa- and its companion piece, Stand By Me, um, directed by Rob Reiner, um, they serve as the foundation upon uh, the argument that, that we can provide to non-Stephen King fans who dismiss him um, for, for the horror that he does and say that movies like this are demonstrations of what he is capable of achieving. And I just, I take such happiness in the fact that someone that is known for his his works of horror is able to create such a feel-good story that was brought to the masses by Frank Darabont. So, um, as I'm recording this, this is this is it for me um, and different seasons. Um, this is, uh, even though this is only the second review that I'm doing in chronological order within different seasons. Um, like I said, I, I have gone on to record um, the apt pupil, two reviews, one for the story and one for the, 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 the movie, and then the review of the body and the review of Stand By Me, and I looped back to, um, to the Shawshank Redemption. So in my timeline, I'm, I'm going to continue reading Christine, um, but for everyone else out there, uh, make sure you stay tuned next week um, as I dive into apt pupil. Um, the novella, which is a very, very dark story, and it couldn't be any, any more of a um, juxtaposition um, coming off the heels of, of such a, a feel-good movie. Um, we're going to go from great triumph of the human spirit to uh, the worst that humanity has to offer in a, a very thrilling, um, very, very dark exploration of the, the, the worst aspects of ourselves. So, um, as always, um, you know, feel free to, to send an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. You can check out uh, um, the, the Instagram page, the, the Twitter, um, Tumblr um, pages, and if you have a chance, like us on Facebook. Um, and like I said, next week, stick around for the review of Apt Pupil. Um, in the meantime, uh, have a great week. See you next week. Same King Time, same King Channel, Stephen Kingcast.